China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies, and this week I'm joined by Rory Truex, an Assistant Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. We'll be discussing his research on public opinion in China. Rory, thanks for joining the podcast. Jude, thank you very much for having me. I wanted to ask an um, intellectual biography question. I find it's easier for listeners to, to get into the discussion if they know a little bit of, about the person. So can you just talk to us a bit about your intellectual journey here from a grad student at Yale? How did you come to focus on this this issue of China's authoritarian political system and, and what are the you know, intellectual challenges or questions that drive you moving forward? Yeah, I think uh, for me, the primary question that's always motivated me is really about trying to understand the CCP's resilience and durability. And this is sort of a classic question in the study of Chinese politics. Many of us probably know uh, that famous piece by Andrew Nathan, but uh, many others have tackled it. And so it's a political system so different from our own, yet it seems to have some broad base of support. So a lot of my research today has focused on trying to understand understand the system itself and also how people feel about it. And, and I was lucky in graduate school, one of my advisors was Pierre Landry, who's uh, one of the pioneering scholars of public opinion. And so he showed me the value of taking this seriously and trying to learn as much as we can about Chinese citizens' attitudes towards their government. Can you just give us, before we get into your work on public opinion, I'm, I'm curious, the resiliency topic, where does the field stand right now? In, you know, Andy Nathan's paper is, what, 20, 20 some odd years old. Can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of where the field is on resiliency? If you had to boil it down, you know, why is the party still in power in 2021? Do we know the kind of composite bricks and mortar of the party's legitimacy, or are there still massive sort of questions plaguing the field? I think there's a lot of unanswered questions. I would say the reason why the party is still in power is because it's been successful at solving the two key dilemmas of authoritarian rule. So managing elite contestations or the threat of coups and, and also the threat of revolution, the threat from below. And Andy Nathan's piece did a nice job outlining some of the key features of the CCP at that time that made it unique. And in particular, he pointed to, on the elite side, the kind of presence of well-institutionalized leadership transition mechanisms and power-sharing mechanisms at the highest levels of the CCP. And then for the citizen side, he talked a lot about input institutions, things like village elections, the People's Congress system, that allow the population to have some say into the policymaking process, albeit a limited one. And so I can't speak for the field today, but I would say there's probably a general feeling that a lot of those key features that made the party special, it seemed to be particularly durable back in the early 2000s, a lot of those have been actively eroded by Xi Jinping. Uh, certainly the citizen-facing mechanisms, you know, discourse in China is much more constrained than it has been. And a lot of those input institutions haven't exactly been strengthened. And then more importantly, we all know Xi Jinping has run roughshod over a lot of the so-called leadership transition institutions. And so I, I would, I think there's a general feeling that the party, while strong, Xi Jinping's rise to power and the way he's assumed power might actually be undermining the long-term durability of the party, although I'm, I'm generally not of the feeling that the party is on the verge of collapse. I know there's, that's certainly a school of thought, but that's not really something I personally ascribe to. Do you see any actions that the party is taking to forge new sort of components or inputs of, of resiliency? In, in other words, you know, might, might Andy Nathan's kind of framing 
have been the approach that they were taking given where they were at their development stage and where they were in terms of global integration. And now it's 20 years later, there's a new set of challenges, a new set of domestic challenges, a new set of international ones. Is it that the party might be or Xi Jinping might be eroding some of the components of of resiliency or might it be that they're sort of moving on to a new paradigm of resiliency based on, on where they are today? So, I mean, I imagine if I sat, if we were talking with Xi Jinping, he might argue that, look, the collective leadership model we have, which you say might be an input into resiliency of the regime, actually was undermining it because we had, you know, we weren't making progress in some of these key areas. So you guys just don't get what, how resiliency has to adapt to, you know, the environment that it's in. Would Xi Jinping be right in that? Well, I think you can make the claim. I mean, I think it's important to remember, often from the outside, we sort of assume that Xi Jinping has just sort of seized power one step at a time to the point where he's reached this the status in the political system where he remains unchallenged. But it's important to remember, I've had some conversations with dissidents over the years that have pointed this out to me, that he's been elevated by other people as well. And his cult of personality and all that's developed, that's not just him foisting that on the, the political system that's been orchestrated by a number of people who are complicit in it and supportive of it. And the most sympathetic argument you could probably make is that some of the reforms he's undertaken, and particularly the anti-corruption campaign, that does require that sort of strong leader um, that's able to challenge others within the party and clean up the party. And even in the 2000s, corruption has long been an issue that does threaten the legitimacy of the Communist Party. And so perhaps Xi Jinping's rise to power, his consolidation of power, allowed the party to address that particular challenge to its legitimacy. In terms of other sources of resilience, you could argue that the, the party has basically just decided to lean more heavily on the, the more traditional tools of authoritarianism, namely coercion, repression, and uh, political education and indoctrination. I have an exam question for my Chinese politics class uh, where I ask students, is revolution even possible today? Like, can we imagine a circumstance under which a Tiananmen Square-like movement gets off the ground? And think about all the little steps that would need to have to happen in order for that to occur. There'd have to be a grievance that unites a lot of the population. That population would then have to attribute it to the political system itself and then take to the streets in large numbers and successfully organize for a lengthy period of time. And just the way social media is controlled in China today, that the sophistication of the repressive apparatus, I, I personally am of the feeling that revolution is not exactly, it may be theoretically possible, but I, I think it's much less much less probable than it ever was. And same for political education and and indoctrination. That's something I see in my data quite a bit, is that people's political ideas, by and large, reflect the ideas that are provided to them by the CCP. And so they are creating a a class of citizenry that isn't exactly pro-democracy, pro-political change. Um, They're they're not unskeptical of political system and they have policy demands, but I would say that if Andy Nathan were to write that piece again today, I bet he would highlight the increase in repression and and political education and ideology and and the the roles of those things in the stability of the party. Final question before we we turn to the research, and and actually is provoked by your comment on, you know, Xi Jinping is in power because of support and elevation from others within the system. I wanted to ask just a lens of analysis question for folks who are thinking about China's political system. I interchangeably and and perhaps without too much methodological rigor alternate between saying Beijing, the CCP, the Xi administration, Xi Jinping, and I guess actually those are all totally different lens of analysis in terms of how I'm looking at how an action is being taken, right? There's a very big difference between saying the CCP does X 
95 million members, or Xi Jinping does X. Now that we're seeing the system move away from a more distributed leadership model of the, say, the Hu era, but yet it's, it's, it's not at the Mao Zedong, or Stalin, one-man rule, do you have any sort of guidance on how we might parse that challenging question of, of how should we describe the system and how should we attribute agency when we're thinking, when we're saying the response from the ruling apparatus is, is X, there are obviously trade-offs and there are downsides to saying Xi Jinping, right? Because as you say, he's just one man. He's 68. He's not kind of arm wrestling everyone every morning. So he's obviously making, he represents a, a coalition or at least a, a minimal consensus amongst a small group of individuals. So there, there are trade-offs, downsides, but do you have any thoughts on, on how you, what language you use when you're describing an action taken by, again, I can't even, I can't ask the question without no, I know. It's, it's, and it's one of those things that we do, especially in public writing, right? When we're looking for different ways to start a sentence, we, we go back and forth between CCP, Chinese government, Xi Jinping quite casually. And I think your point is well taken in that sometimes that obfuscates what's really going on. And we attribute things to the top when they might not be coming from the top. And so, you know, I, I personally avoid a few things. I avoid saying China did something or that the Chinese did this. I do attribute it to the government and more often I attribute it to the party itself because I just think that that's more accurate. And it also then avoids the trap of making the party and the Chinese people synonymous, which is, of course, a strategy of the party itself to make itself the protector of the nation. And so I, I've, where possible, I try to disentangle the nation and the Chinese people from the CCP. And the only other advice I would give to people as you think, seek to grapple with this is I... I think this concept of fragmented authoritarianism, which again is an old concept in the study of Chinese politics with the basic idea being that policymaking and, and ideas and, and decision-making in the, in the Chinese system are quite diffuse. And even under Xi Jinping with his centralization and personalization of power, they remain quite diffuse. And so just because we observe something happening in China doesn't mean that it was the decision of the CCP at the highest level or the personal decision of, of Xi Jinping. So, for example, if a dissident gets detained or, or an American gets detained, for that matter, doesn't mean that that detention was signed off on at the highest levels. Or was it some local public security official, you know, some city police officer that was trying to cover himself and engage in that kind of preemptive repression? We don't really know. So I, I would say we should just be cautious and careful about imputing leadership on a, on a given decision when we don't really know. That's helpful. And I guess part of it depends, too, on the, the dynamic you're looking to, to attach agency to. So there may be times we're saying Xi Jinping, that might be the appropriate, you know, that might be the appropriate descriptor, and there are other times where, you know, Beijing or the I've, – I've increasingly said the Xi administration, partly to try to get to that dynamic of he's in power, but along with other people. Yeah, no, and I think that's healthy, and I think that seems like good language to me. Although we just uh, spent 10 minutes talking about something totally unrelated, uh, to try to square the circle or, or make a clumsy segue, the, the proximate reason for our discussion today was I wanted to ask you about some of the new research that you've published but also are, are currently working on, which is on public opinion in China. Before we get into some of the specific papers, I actually I wanted to ask if you could set the scene for us by talking about how political scientists – have traditionally approached this challenge of measuring, assessing, analyzing public opinion in closed authoritarian political systems where the ability to just come out and say, for example, do you support Xi Jinping or do you support the Communist Party? Difficult. And you can imagine there's 
issues of self-censorship where people don't want to, even on when questions are phrased non-sensitively, they may understand the, the ultimate objective here and, and self-censor, or this idea of, of uh, preference falsification where what you say you believe in is not actually what you believe in. It's kind of a form of of, of self-censorship. So how has the field waded through this challenge at a 35,000 foot level? And then we'll talk about some of the work that you've been doing more recently. Yeah, I, I would start by saying that, you know, there's a very long and rich tradition of public opinion work in China that really began in earnest in the 1980s and took off in the 1990s and 2000s. Um, and it's always been highly regulated. And especially when foreign researchers are involved, uh, it usually requires a local partner, usually at a Chinese university. And the questionnaire itself is usually co-authored and ultimately vetted by the government. And so that's something people should know is that this is a highly regulated process. And that means that certain questions and certain things simply cannot be asked in the Chinese context. So it's sort of an unwritten rule that one cannot ask questions about individual leaders. So I, to my knowledge, no one has ever asked how supportive of you are of Xi Jinping. I mean, maybe someone has done it, but it certainly would be out of bounds by my estimation. So uh, certain questions are off limits, and that's not uniformly true in the authoritarian world. So in Russia, for example, you know, Russian citizens are regularly asked sort of approval rating type questions of Putin. So I would say China is not the most closed in terms of its survey environment. Rory, can I ask what explains the difference there? Why might some authoritarian political systems allow, like why does Putin allow someone to say, do you support, do they see that as an information gathering channel that they don't have the means to to get elsewhere, whereas the party maybe feels like they've... Well, and, and I should say, I don't know what, the, what kinds of questions the party is asking in its own internal research. And the, and the CCP itself is certainly doing some public opinion work. So it's quite possible someone somewhere is asking that question, but it's not something I've seen in scholarly research. I don't quite know the answer to that question, Jude, but I would say probably part of it has to do with a tradition of the, the political competition itself in the system. And so, you know, Russia has elections today, and that sort of approval rating question is sort of part and parcel to elections. And so if you're asking people to vote, asking them, do you support the president or who are you going to vote for? That's sort of a natural thing. Even in a place like Russia, you know, the survey environment is always fraught and, and threatened, right? So one sensitive result or a questionnaire that gets the bad type of publicity, I think, can jeopardize individual firms or researchers who are involved. So anybody working in this space, it's always a little bit sensitive, even, even in outside of China. But I think in China, there's just not a tradition of this type of question, in part because it doesn't, the person in power, it really doesn't help them, right? So worst case, there's public opinion data that shows Xi Jinping's performance is waning or something like that. So there's there's really, there's no interest in the CCP to have that type of data come out. And there's a certain path dependence here, which is if they haven't done it for decades, why would they start now? So I think, I think there's a little bit of that. But that said, it is possible to ask political questions in China. And that's another thing that outsiders might not know is that, you know, you can ask questions about satisfaction with the government, satisfaction with the central government, trust in government, even attitudes about democracy, Western multi-party democracy, those types of questions have been asked over the years. And so you can get a general sense of what people say is their attitude towards the government. And I think this goes back to your question, which is one of the central problems with studying public opinion in a place like China is when you receive an answer, let's say you ask someone on a scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with the government, the central government? And they say nine. Do they really feel nine? Or are they saying nine because that's what they think they're supposed to say? Someone, I think, I think it was Yasheng Huang who said, sometimes Chinese citizens take public opinion surveys like their tests. 
and they try to say the right answer, not, not how they really feel. Or even worse, maybe they, they say nine because they're scared. Or maybe they say nine because they don't really know how they feel and they just put a number down. And that's, that's another form of a bias in an answer. And so as a researcher, when you, you see the data coming back, you're trying to disentangle all of those possibilities. And this concern about self-censorship or what you described as preference falsification. Preference falsification is a jargony way of saying that people are inflating how they feel, right? So if I really, if I really hate the government, but I, I say I like it, I go around saying I love the government, that's, that's the concept of preference falsification. So that's something we as researchers have to grapple with. And so I think anytime we make conclusions about public opinion in China, I always try to say, this is what we know about how Chinese citizens express themselves on surveys. It's We should be careful in saying this is how they truly feel in their heart of hearts, because that's harder to discern. Digging into the, one of the first papers, which I, I all these were really interested, but I, I found the one especially interesting, the one that was talking about personality traits within the Communist Party, partly because the party feels like this very mysterious organization, and yet at 95 million members represents such a diverse cast of characters. It makes sense to me that, you know, when the party is vetting new entrants, that it's looking for certain characteristics. But I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of personality types, what were you finding? And I, I just for the audience just want to read a sentence from your paper. You say, we learned that the CCP has been successful in co-opting citizens with particularly dynamic personalities, go-getter types that find personal and professional success. This provides a stock of talent from which to draw for government and party positions and a stock of social influence that allows the regime to transmit its narrative. Can you just unpack a bit the results you were finding about these go-getter types? And also, if you could, just for folks, how did you conduct this particular survey? So yeah, this project is called Personalities of the Discontent. And in it, I do three different surveys, one of which is online, one one of which is of Beijing University students um, at a number of different universities in Beijing, I should clarify. And another is a face-to-face nationally representative urban survey. And those were conducted in partnership with Chinese counterparts. And on the survey, I asked a very detailed personality battery. And I, I think this is, to my knowledge, the first project or one of the first projects to do so, where I, I administered a very lengthy personality test called the Hexaco personality test, which has 60 questions and is meant to capture six different dimensions of personality, which have been studied in, in detail by psychologists. And then the paper, I, I just simply try to relate that to indicators of regime support and political participation. So I try to ask, for example, people who say they dislike the government, what kind of personalities do they have in general? People who are party members, what types of personalities do they have relative to the population? People who are protesters, what types of personalities they have. So I'm able to kind of develop sort of aggregate personality profiles of different types of people in the Chinese political system using this data. I should say at the outset that this is all sort of, anytime I speak about a finding here, I would say it's all averages. So when I say that, for example, party members tend to be very extroverted people, that doesn't mean they're all extroverted. Or when I say that discontents are sort of socially isolated, that's not uniformly true. But so we'll speak in in averages and generalizations. To your question about the specific finding about party members, basically what you observe in the data is that party members have a few different traits that tend to be associated with personal and professional success. So they're very socially confident. Um, They have high levels of extroversion. They're very social, confident, outgoing people. They also have high levels of what's known as agreeableness, which is a a psychologist's way of saying that they, they get along well with other people. 
Um, they're very patient people. They forgive other people. They tend to be very flexible. And a, finally, another trait that jumps out for them is they have high levels of conscientiousness. Conscientiousness is, has to do with things like perfectionism and work ethic, organization, and also caution. So they tend to be people that, unsurprisingly, are sort of high-performing conformists, uh, if I could put it that way. And this is not surprising you know, for, for people who have observed the evolution of the party over time, especially how recruitment occurs at the university level. I mean, to my what I've been told by, by my Chinese students is that being in the party today at, the, at a young level is sort of like being Phi Beta Kappa or Summa Cum Laude, and, and it tends to attract sort of the, the, these, uh, these elite types for that reason. Does, you know, Rory, does looking at the causality the other way, is, is there any possibility that it is through joining the, the party and through socializing into the party culture that one develops some of these traits? Or do you think it's that the party has essentially gone out and found, you know, as it's doing the vetting, um, individuals who uh, meet these KPIs? Jude, that is uh, just like the perfect political science question. Causality. So this, this paper, frankly, doesn't do a great job with that. And it's, it's very difficult to disentangle that. And so what I can say is there's generally an association be- between these traits and party membership. But um, it's hard for me to say which direction the causal arrow flows. I would say in general, in psychology, there's a feeling that a lot of personality is genetically determined um, and actually formed early in life. It's, people's personality can change over time, but so my gut reaction is that it's probably more of a selection mechanism than a socialization mechanism. But it's interesting, another part of the paper, I talk about um, the discontented citizens. So people who say, when you ask them, are you satisfied with the government? And they say one out of 10 or two out of 10. People who say on a survey that they don't like the Chinese government, you know, there's not that many of them. They're only about 5% of a given sample. And what I find is that those types of people are, are tend to be socially isolated. So they're highly introverted. They don't get along well with other people. They tend to have disagreeable personalities. And they also tend to be sort of anxious and fearful. They're kind of lo- more loner types. And I should say again that that's a generalization. And I'm speaking about people who say they're discontent on a survey. I'm not, I'm not speaking about dissidents or activists. I think that's a completely different type of person. But what I've noticed in my own interactions with people in sort of that area of the political spectrum is I do think there's a little bit of causality running in both directions in the sense that if you're sort of isolated, you know, you're kind of more naturally inclined. You're, you're resistant to socialization. Maybe you're, you're less affected by peer pressure and, and political education. And you kind of come to be critical that way. But then when you become critical of the government, I think in contemporary China, that sort of puts you on a path to becoming a bit of an outsider. And it has impacts on your everything from the marriage market to your professional success and so forth. And so you, if you're isolated, you might come to dislike the party. And by coming to voice your discontent with the party, that might make you more isolated. And it's sort of this feedback loop, I think, that puts people on the outside. And I, I think to me, that's, that's what stood out to me about this paper is that the party is just so dominant that discontent is really relegated to the social margins. And that's, that speaks to uh, this theme of resilience that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. You've also done work, so if that was looking at personality types, you've also done work using word association tests. And before we dig into the findings, I wonder if you can talk about what is a word association test? I think we all know word associations, but, but why is this, why did you adopt this approach uh, when looking at, at popular opinion? In other words, what were some of the shortcomings of, of other ways that folks have tried to gauge public opinion? 
Yeah, this is something that we're, we're sort of trying to experiment with, and we don't really know. We're not quite uh, sure how the method will pan out. But one of the issues that we've talked about is when you ask people how they feel about the government in China, you might get crickets, right? And or you might get some some degree of self-censorship. And so typically we've, we've used direct questions. So how satisfied are you with the central government? That would be a direct question. But we know empirically that people tend to shy away from answering that type of question at slightly higher rates. So there's a lot of people who just refuse to answer. Carrie Radigan and Leah, Leah Rabin have a good piece on this in the China Quarterly. Um, and so we're just trying to come up with different ways to ask the question, basically. And another method would be to use word association, which is simply saying, what's the first word that comes to mind? Or uh, on a survey, write down, you have 20 seconds, write down as many words that come to mind uh, when I give you the following cue. And that cue could be central government, it could be, could be uh, CCP, it could be democracy, it could be any word you choose. And so we tried to do that as a way of reducing the sensitivity of the question. And we did observe that when we ad administered that type of question, you know, people answered it. And they typically answered it in an unreasonable amount of time. Like there was nothing in the, our data that suggested that they took longer to answer that question when they saw a political word or something like that. So we were just trying to give people a little bit more cover, a little bit more protection by making the question less direct. Can you just give an example, a few of those keywords and, and what some of the what some of the responses that you were getting? Yeah, we, we implemented the test. We did a lot of keywords, actually. So we included some political words like central government and CCP and the word China itself. But we also included a lot of filler words, uh, basically common words in Chinese, things like yesterday or school or crime or just sort of filler words. And so when people took this test, they, they would actually have to complete the trial, the kind of the, the test itself for 20 or 30 different words, only some of which would be political in nature. And that, again, was designed to kind of put the respondent at ease and, and reduce the sensitivity of the overall exercise. And then when you get the data back, it's basically like a string of words for each person. So um, what did you say when I gave you the word China? And people would say things like motherland or powerful or great or jiaoyo, let, let's go. So they would say a number of different words. And this, our general move that we make in the paper is that we can use those words to understand how people are thinking a little bit about the party and about the government more broadly. Can you give us the top line results from this in terms of levels of, you know, or what you perceive levels of support or optimism about, let's say, the, the Communist Party? What did you see from this? Well, I would say the overarching finding would be that people kind of provide responses that mirror the language of the party itself. So when you provide the word central government or CCP, they provide words about leadership and government and management, but they also provide, I would say, very optimistic words in general, words that convey a sense of pride in the country. They use words like mother, development, prosperity, strength, greatness, long live, one sway, these, sort, these sorts of words. Those are overwhelmingly the, the majority of responses. And so again, this kind of brings us back, like, is this authentic or are people, people just sort of taking this like they would take a test? And we'll never really be able to answer that question. But I would say it's, it's not uniformly the case that people give this type of answer. We did the same study. We've, we did a, uh, a word association test in another project, I've done a word association test about attitudes towards, towards Donald Trump around the 2020 election. And in the U.S. context, you know, you see uh, uh, findings where Republicans say positive words about Trump and, and Democrats say negative words. And so it's not uniformly the case that in a Watt people, you know, people do seem to express their attitudes on a Watt, at least in the American context, in a word association test. 
So that would be kind of the top level finding. And then more specifically, you know, on, more, on concepts like the word democracy, we ask them attitudes towards democracy or what's your, what word comes to mind when you see the word democracy. Um, and here we see, again, the kind of party definition, sort of the socialist democracy, Chinese style democracy, that type of language coming out um, where people associate democracy, not so much with elections and procedural things, but things like the rule of the people or some of the core socialist values that the party has put in fa- place, like prosperity, harmony, these sorts of ideas. Do we have any sense, by the way, in your work, but but looking across the work done on public opinion, on any clear geographic, socioeconomic, gender, any any differences that seem to be showing up in some of these top line assessments on, on regime support? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say a lot of it, my general feeling is that it's a lot less conclusive than you might think. And that, you know, depending on the study, we might get that income predicts this uh, regime support measure in one study and not in another. Um, I would say a few things emerged as pretty solid. So CCP members, unsurprisingly, tend to be more regime affirming. I would say in general, we, we see that people who have higher levels of education tend to be, and I, that's a big generalization, tend to be a little bit more critical of the party and a little bit more critical about the status of democracy. Ditto for income, although it's slightly weaker. And then geographically, I'd have to look back at the data. I would say in general, there's a feeling that sort of the eastern seaboard, the kind of major tier one cities in the east, eastern part of China, they tend to be a little bit more critical, a little bit more politically liberal, so to speak, um, relative to the interior provinces. But that's a big generalization. So how do we make sense of this? I would say there's a little bit of a modernization story in here in the sense that in, in political science, there's this old idea that as people get wealthier, they get more critical of the government. So you can see a little bit of that in the data, but I would be very cautious about going too far with that interpretation in the sense that there's a long body of scholarship, people like Jia Chen and, and Bruce Dixon, that show that the capitalist class, the middle class in general, is is largely regime affirming. And so it's, it's not the case that Chinese citizens are getting richer and now they want Western multi-party democracy. Like that's so very far from the truth. And that's what bears out in the data. This is a speculative question. So all the caveats apply. But I wanted you to, given that you've been immersing yourself in not only your work on public opinion, but others, I wonder if you could help paint a more kind of composite snapshot of where public opinion is. And the analog here is the New York Times had a piece over the weekend, a kind of state of the nation piece here in the United States that painted one of kind of exhaustion, frustration, malaise. They were kind of slumping poll numbers for, for President Biden. I, overall, I get the sense of a, of a country that was sort of a little bit rudderless, anxious, tired. If you were making a similar composite analysis of where China's public opinion is today about the future of the country, about the leadership, or at least the, the Communist Party, what would be your snapshot composite picture? I think the high-level finding would probably be, and this is, again, not old news, this, is, um, this finding has been quite robust in the China field over time, but that Chinese citizens, by and large, support the political system, and they support the regime. They particularly support the central government, which they view as competent and virtuous relative to the local government, which is often viewed as sort of failing to implement the directives of the central government properly. And so this is sort of the flip side of what you observe in the West, uh, where people tend to 
like their local, local government and hate Congress and hate the president. Um, in China, it's, it's sort of the opposite. But even support for local government in China is quite high. So I'd say the overarching finding is that Chinese citizens, by and large, seem to support the system. Again, caveats should be applied because we don't it's always difficult to gauge the public opinion given some of the issues we've identified. But I, I tend to believe that there is a, a deep reservoir of support for the government in China um, and relatedly a high level of optimism. And it's interesting, if you look at cross-national data, what you tend to observe is that actually people in democratic systems are the most critical of their government and the most kind of pessimistic about their government and the direction of their country. And places like China or Vietnam, like citizens are very satisfied and optimistic now, part of that might be socialization, like sort of part of being a democratic system is we're taught to complaining, complain. Yeah, we're taught to be critical and to want more. And so that's probably manifests itself on surveys. And in China, it's quite the opposite, right? You're literally taught to support the system and to play your role in helping the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And so you're not exactly taught to be critical. And so that's probably what we're observing in the data. The other couple things I would say would be, this isn't to say that Chinese citizens aren't ever critical, nor that they should be treated as a monolith. And I think if I had to be self-critical, I think in my own work I do, I need to do more to disentangle different ideological camps and ideas in the Chinese uh, population. You do that very well in your book. And I think there's others, um, I Ching Xu and Jen Pan, you, you spoke to Jason Wu a couple weeks ago, people that are doing a really good job at thinking about different subtypes of Chinese citizens, people who gravitate more towards market ideas or more towards democracy and less so. Uh, so I, I think we need to be careful about treating the Chinese population as a monolith. And finally, relatedly, Chinese citizens, while largely system supporting, system affirming, uh, can nevertheless still get really upset about particular issues. And we've seen that time and time again with respect to sort of different policy crises that the Chinese government has, has dealt with. The sort of enduring issues probably the single most enduring issue, at least for, for a couple decades now, has always been corruption. And so there are, this is not to say that the Chinese government has nothing to worry about and that sort of specific issues, if poorly handled over a long term, can't damage the party because I think they can. Roy, that's a excellent place to, to end. So uh, I, I want to thank you. This is really, really great insights. Um, and this work is going to become just increasingly important. I think for many of the reasons you just touched upon on the end there, I think as as the political system gets more authoritarian, I think there's going to become more of a tendency to assume a, a unity of, of opinions or views. But obviously, a nation of 1.4 billion people are going to have, you know, 1.6 billion different opinions. So this is really critical work. Thank you very much for this. It's a really fascinating discussion. I highly recommend uh, everyone will put links to, to the papers, go read them, or in my case, read the first page and the last page and skip the, uh, skip the equations and the data uh, in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably fine. That, that should do the trick. Thank you for having me, Jude. I really, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Thanks, Rory. Peakingology listeners, I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the CSIS China Power Project and host of the China Power Podcast. I'm inviting you to listen to our conversations with leading experts on the challenges and opportunities presented by China's growing power. We discuss topics such as Chinese military capabilities, China's relations with other countries, and critical issues in U.S.-China relations. You can listen and subscribe to the China Power Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on chinapower.csis.org.
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 